This is an ABC podcast. It's late spring and no better time to travel to Stonefields, home of garden designer Paul Bangay. Our mission to capture that most magical time of the year, the annual Buxus harvest. Stay tuned, it's a bumper crop. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint for Living. Places, spaces, food, gardens and design. All of it neatly trimmed. Uh, Coming up, you'll meet James Binning, one of the founders of Assemble, a British design and architecture practice brewing something interesting in Canberra. Uh, Colin Bissett goes face-to-face with car grills and buxes aplenty with Paul Bangay. But first, I sink my teeth into what is allegedly the world's best croissant. You're about to hear a little boulangerie visit I made to Loon Croissanterie. Uh, And just to note, this chat involves a brief discussion about eating disorders. It's a beautiful day uh, in Fitzroy in Melbourne. I'm in Rose Street, which is where you will find Loon allegedly the home of the world's finest croissants. And where you will find that extraordinary and unique feature, I think, the the loon queue. Any given day, people will be here queuing to buy a croissant. Why is that? Hello. um, Sorry. That's all right, you're texting. Yeah, saying maybe not. It's not exactly moving quickly if you're wondering why I'm standing in a queue. Well, I was. I'm from the ABC. <laughs> why, why, why are you queuing for a croissant? Because I'm working from home around the corner and I said to my parent, uh, to my husband, do you feel like a loon croissant? And yeah. I wasn't expecting this. So now I'm actually going to leave and go somewhere else. Oh. So I'm the wrong... That wasn't the answer I, I know. Expecting. I know. <laughs> Sorry. That'll do. <laughs> I'm not that patient. Hello. I'm from the ABC. Why are you queuing for baked goods? Uh, Because my uh, lovely friend here um, suggested we should come here. I've come from Queensland. Oh, so this is a bit of a tourist destination. Well, I just got them off the plane and I thought they need to figure out what good croissants taste like. And you're you're familiar with the loon croissant? Yep. What makes it so good? Um, I think they take their time in what they do and they present it really well. Worth queuing for? Yeah. How, what's the longest you've queued for a croissant? Oh, not, not obnoxiously long. <laughs> All right, well, enjoy. I hope your Queensland friends are impressed. No. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. All right, here we go and have a look. So I've come inside and I'm here, I'm here to meet the loon lady herself, Kate Reid. Uh, Kate has just made sure that I've got coffee and she has whisked away to get me a croissant. Because I'm definitely somebody that believes in there being... Did you say hand-selected? Hand-selected. Chose this out of thousands. I I chose it out of thousands for you. (laughs) And I haven't brought a knife because I feel like you're just going to bite into it. I'm going to have a bit of a hack. (laughs) A bit of a hack, I love that. Tell me about this croissant, Kate. I mean, just describe this to me with your expert eye. Oh, we're already on? We are. Oh, okay. So, the way you start, you have a big lump of dough. Yes. And a big sheet of butter. Yes. And you flatten the dough out and you start to incorporate the butter in by 
essentially folding it into like the dough. Like making puff pastry with a bit exactly. more delicate. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So a loon croissant doesn't, it has one less turn than a classic recipe for croissant, which means the gluten is developed slightly less, so it's a little bit more delicate and not as tough. Okay. And Because the, the more you work that, the more you are... That's exactly right. ...mucky with the chemistry of the flour. Exactly. Hmm. Um, also, you can tell that the layers are fractionally thicker than the recipe for a classic croissant, which gives you, like, when you picked that up, Already it was like crackly and breaking. Yes. But if three turns had have been used, the crumb, like these beautiful big flakes would be a lot finer and they'd like shatter into tiny little bits. But I like big crunchy bits of croissant. <laughs> it's not very, very technical, is it? No, no, big crunchy bits. I think that is the, yeah. the authorised phrase. Big, buttery crunchy There must bits. be some French, you know, government body which de- determines the appropriate phraseology for describing a croissant. I have no doubt that that, that government that body exists. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and baking, and, and this is so true of croissants and so true from, from what I see in your book too, which is the, the translation of this process for, for home use. Even so, it is tremendously specific. Very. And I think the, the, the really challenging thing is, and maybe this is more on a commercial level than a home level, but... The cheapest ingredient we have at Loon is the fresh yeast. Like, we spend an absolute fortune on butter. We buy the best quality eggs and milk. We source specific flour. So the yeast is by far the cheapest ingredient. But it's almost the most critical in determining the success of the end product. And when you put the yeast into the dough on day one... You don't know until day three when you pull it out of the prover and you're ready to bake it if there's something wrong with that yeast. How hard was it to, to sort of scale up this business? It's, I mean, and, and keep that particularity about it, keep that attention to the detail. The... Well, I think the, the, the balance is maintaining the quality and, and the attention to detail, but finding ways to find efficiency mm-hmm. without affecting the quality and that hasn't just been me like I think if Loon if, if I hadn't have invited my brother to come and be part of Loon I might still be in Elwood obsessing over making 200 croissants a day as perfect as I possibly can but like the process that I used back then has evolved so much in the last 10 years that like the chefs that you see in the cube right now yeah. And they it is a cube. It's a glass cube. They're yeah. on display. It's beautiful. A climate-controlled glass cube. Of course. <laughs> well, how much of that did you learn in, in Formula One, which well, is, goes to your origin story? Well, course, that entire process of testing, experimentation, iteration, improvement is engineering way of thinking. And that's why it's it's not common for a bakery to challenge the status quo of a classic recipe. See, in, the, in that cube, you could be you could be making croissants or you could be stripping down a, a V10 engine. A V10. Well, that's what we do. That that's what we do after we close. <laughs> <laughs> it actually, the space in the cube for me, in a funny way, is very reminiscent of the the area. Like I, I can't, don't actually remember what it was called. I guess it was a garage of some format, but where they kept the race cars. It was. It's similar to like the race bay, I guess. I think that's what it was called. It was so spotless that you could have eaten your dinner off the floor. Like, and and they yeah. would have yeah. the race car. Almost, almost as a deconstructed explosion of like the perfect. You know when you see those exploded engineering drawings. That's what it was. But it, in, in, in real life. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was so exacting. 
spotless, the attention to detail. Like there was there was no room for distraction. It was pretty special. I mean, people must find that, that transition of yours endlessly fascinating. And yet, as, as you point out, I can see the connections. The, there is sort of a straight line through this. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've had a lot of journalists laugh at me in the past, like, well, Formula One to croissants, that's ridiculous. But I'm not... Slower. I'm, well, I'm not, te- I'm not <laughs> testing croissants in the wind tunnel yet. <laughs> Mind you, now that you say that... <laughs> I mean, I think the nice thing is, though, that there's a there's there's a, a, a large arc towards the impossibility of perfection with croissants. Totally, and like also, no one's ever going to perfect it, and I, 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 that's I guess that's one of the. So what the, you make will fall somewhere on it. I mean, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly, and also, even if you completely mess up your lamination in the process, or you've accidentally picked a day that it's 40 degrees and and nothing's staying solid, aka butter, there are recipes in the book that will still lend themselves to a delicious finished product, and I'm squarely looking at the quinamon in this case. Even if your lamination is terrible, if you shape a quinamon with your pastry, when you pull it out of the oven, it will be the most delicious thing you've ever pulled out of your oven at home. And it will make the house smell amazing, so... It's, it's kind of a win-win situation. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a thing to be tried. And I guess the thing too, if you... And, and, and be prepared to fail and be prepared yep. to have terrible outcomes. Well, I did. I tried yes. it a couple of times when I got home from France. I bought some books that had recipes for the home cook and they were unmitigated disasters. And then I went and spent all my life savings and set up Loon on the back of that. But why did you make that switch to, from, from Williams to the Boulangerie? Oh, it, that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big story. But um, in a nutshell, I thought that everything that I wanted that was fulfilling in a career, and I'm somebody that needs to be driven on a daily basis by how I spend my every waking minute, I thought that I you would have get... a certain amount of energy about you, just to be said. <laughs> what I talk a lot, <laughs> but I thought that I would get um, everything that I needed out of a career in Formula One to feel completely fulfilled, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it wasn't the case. And because I am such a driven person, and I found myself in a situation and an environment that I worked so hard to get to. And I'd taken myself to the other side of the world. Like, I'm incredibly close with my family who all live here in Melbourne. And I'd put myself as far away as I could possibly be from my beautiful support network and my family. You ended up quite psychologically fragile. Very. Uh, It was never diagnosed, but I'm 100% certain that um, I developed depression. But then depression did turn into anorexia. And I became really sick. And... The ironic thing about an eating disorder is that you can't stop thinking about food. It seems logical, like if you're starving your body, your body's just sending signals to your brain all day telling you to think about eating food and you don't dream about eating a leaf of lettuce. Like, no one dreams about that. Oh, I mean, I love baked goods. Yeah. So not specifically a croissant, but, like, that's what my brain was always going to. And so instead of eating it, I'd get home from a day at work where I'd felt feel completely unfulfilled and I'd go home and bake. And I'd pick out a different recipe every night and I'd 
I would start to get a bit experimental with it and I'd live vicariously through this process of working with raw ingredients, you know, like flour, sugar and eggs. You can't eat them raw by themselves, but through the magic of science of baking, you end up with a product that is so much greater than the sum of its parts. So, I mean, when did that tweak to you that, yes, actually... Here is the thing. This is the thing that I can, I need to learn about. I mean, I think your instinct would be that I need to get expertise here. Yeah. Well, I think. All right. So it's, it gets sad before it gets happy. Okay. Um, I, I was so unwell that my dad had to fly to the UK to bring me home. And good dad will do that. My dad's the best. Don't get me started on my dad. I'll get emotional. <laughs> my mum and my dad are the best. So dad came over, packed up my life, and flew me back to Australia. But again, somebody that still needs to fill their every waking minute with something that they love. The day I landed, I looked in the... I don't know if anyone out there will remember this or if it still exists, the Leader newspaper. Yes. Does that still exist? It doesn't, but some it of doesn't. us will remember. I think local, I used to be on Local newspapers. Yeah, local yes. newspaper. <laughs> where they would have a little section where they listed job ads for local businesses. Okay. And Philippa's in Armadale, the beautiful Philippa's in Armadale. Lovely bakery. I love it. I still, like, their olive Toscano for me is still the best bread out there. They were advertising for a counter hand. Not a pastry chef, but I thought it's my chance to just dip my toe in the industry and see if I like it. So I applied for the job. I'm pretty sure I, I'm someone that's so full of passion that I could talk myself into any job. I managed to talk myself into a job where nine hours a day I was going to stand behind a bakery counter and put myself in the most torturous position possible, like surrounded by all this food that I wasn't letting myself eat. But So I got this job at Philippa's and I absolutely adored it, but the only thing that just drove me nuts was that I wasn't making what we were selling. And that was enough of an indication to me that I really wanted to pursue a career as a pastry chef. And that meant Paris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a really okay. nice story to how I ended up in Paris. I'd sort of, like, this whole period of time, I was on a slow road to recovery. But um, I'd started, I'd gotten a job working at this beautiful little local cafe making all their cakes and biscuits and stuff. But I was starting to get a bit bored by the simplicity of that style of baking and getting a bit more interested in French pastry because it's so technical. And I bought a book on Amazon and had it delivered to my home. I came home from work one day and there's this beautiful book about Paris patisseries. And I opened it up randomly to this double page of Pan au Chocolat. <laughs> and like you could see every, like, you know, when I brought the croissant over to you, you could see all the layers, but yeah. this was so zoomed, like a macro zoom in of every perfect layer. And I was probably hypnotized by the photo walked up to Flight Centre in Camberwell and immediately booked myself a ticket to Paris. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then when I was in Paris, I went into the boulangerie where the photo had been taken. Yeah. And I told the story in broken French to the vendors that a photo of their pan au chocolat had prompted me to book the trip that I was on to Paris. And she went and got the owner. He spoke English. I told him. He wrapped up all these pastries for me. I went and sat on the steps of Montmartre and... <laughs> ate them. And it was like it was like being in Emily or something. I don't know. It was a very romantic setting. It is. And I was so taken by the experience I'd had in the boulangerie and the beauty of the pastries that I'd eaten, and also just witnessing this little cue that was just constant in the bakery, and mm. had this realization that every single person that was standing in the, that queue was having this little moment of joy with 
like this interaction with first of all buying the pastry being surrounded by the beauty of the boulangerie and the smells that were in there and then getting to walk out and for 10 10 or 15 minutes this moment of happiness while they ate something that that they'd looked forward to I'm like well, that, that guy gets to give this to several hundred people a day that's like, nice. pretty special so i emailed him i went like I'd caught the train down to Salah, which is in the Dordogne, um, the, the next day. And this is in the day where there's, like, no smartphones and there's an internet room in a hotel. <laughs> yes. But, like, this was a pokey hotel and it was, like, a broom closet with, you know, this old computer with dial-up internet. So I log on and I go to the website of the Boulangerie and they've got a contact form. And so I just write this impassioned email to this guy thanking him for the pastries and just saying how... He was so lucky because his job gives him the opportunity to make people happy every day. And we had a, a couple of back and forth emails and I finally plucked up the courage and said, oh, I don't suppose you'd ever take me on as an apprentice. He said, well, you know, at the Boulangerie, you have no one that speaks English and it's very small. We don't normally do that. But for some reason, I can see the same passion and motivation in you that is in me. Yes, when do you want to start? Wow. So <laughs> that's when my love affair of the croissant really started. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Thanks. Sorry, I well, banged I, on a bit there. No, but, he, but, but here you are doing precisely what you what you admired, yeah. which, which you saw as the possibility in, in that, that boulangerie, your own. Well, sometimes I have little moments where I get to step back and I think it was a few years ago on a random Monday afternoon and I walked into this space in Fitzroy and there was a bum on every seat and people just enjoying croissants all throughout the shop and I just had this little like wow oh my god <laughs> this is my place what <laughs> that's such a nice moment okay. yeah. what a treat to meet you and, and thank you for sharing that, that beautiful story oh thank you so much for having a chat to and me the, and the croissant of course. Oh, and the croissant and the coffee <laughs> I'm so light. glad you enjoyed it <laughs> Thanks to Kate Reed at Loon. Uh, and her book, Loon Croissants All Day, All Night, is out now. Uh, and if you or anyone you know is experiencing body image concerns or an eating disorder, you can call the Butterfly Foundation National Helpline on 1800 334 673 or email support at butterfly.org.au or chat online via butterfly.org.au. Canberra, it's, it's, it's a design city, Australia's only purpose-built city. Uh, designed from scratch, sort of a, a high-functioning civic monument. So, <laughs> planning has a long and interesting history in Canberra. There's sort of a teetering balance between an ethos of, of enforcement and, and market-driven open slather. The Dairy Road residential project, it's a new thing, and it might fall into some interesting middle ground, a space of, of, of creative response. And the project aims to combine commercial and light industrial activities alongside residential, creative, cultural spaces. Very modern. And it's, it's drumming up uh, quite a bit of excitement and interest, partly because... Uh, local designers have partnered with UK design and architecture practice Assemble. Uh, you may know that name as winners of, of Britain's prestigious Turner Prize in 2015. James Binning uh, is co-founder of Assemble. He joins us now. James, hello. Hi. 
Where's work at? You're you're in uh, in the country making some presentations. There's there's great interest in this project. Yeah, um, I mean, we've been working on the project at Dairy Road since the beginning, really, as far as, well, uh, that's how it's felt to us anyway, I think from a very early stage, which is quite often the stage we get involved with in projects, sort of before there's a, um, much of a need to sort of start drawing and those kinds of things and really trying to establish quite fundamental ambitions and, and agendas for projects. And so that's been the case. And then over the last sort of 18 months or so, starting to to develop more specific designs for the sites, both our part, which is more focused on, as you said, um, uh, kind of really quite industrious and, and kind of creative commercial mix, um, lots of different kind of workspaces and cultural spaces um, that hopefully will support lots of a real sort of diversity of activity, um, and then a residential neighbourhood in the, the more southern part of the site that some mm. other architects, David Chipperfield architects, are working on. I think we're coming slowly to the conclusion, are we not, in, a, in an urban planning sense, that that sort of combination of, of activity is, is a secret to human happiness? Well, I, th- I think it just makes places richer and more interesting and more varied. You know, I think um, in the middle of the 20th century, there was maybe a much greater emphasis on the separation of uses, you know, and, and often we don't see that at a really local level um, and residential areas often incorporate you know, the kind of retail, shops, restaurants, the kinds of things that, you know, aren't too messy and smelly or dirty. But often the kinds of things that we also like to have in our cities, theatres, spaces for exhibiting or cinemas, those kinds of spaces are places which are really kind of vital to the cultural life of, of urban areas. But the kinds of spaces often that sit behind those visible activities. The sets for theatre are often made in big industrial, cheaper warehouse-type spaces. The kind of experience of manufacturers, fabricators, people doing material processing that artists rely on to produce works, but also just the other stuff that we need to get by in cities, you know, access to car mechanics, places to buy your paint or your building materials, as well as things, you know, that underpin other parts of the economy, more industrial activities. People don't or haven't traditionally been so interested in living alongside those things, and that's partly because they were pretty dirty in some cases, quite undesirable. Mm. Um, And they were sort of zoned very differently to most residential areas. And I think the nature and the processes involved in lots of those things has changed, I think, you know, is, is in lots of aspects of life, we become more removed from the way that things are made. Um, people are also more interested and, and I think more kind of willing to to sort of live along and rub alongside those things in their residence, in their, you know, in the places where we live and where we work. I wonder if the, the sort of the, the, the creative crossovers in a practice like Assemble, in a, in a funny way, mirrors that sort of approach that you're striving for on the ground. I mean, um, tell us more about Assemble, I guess, to, to illuminate that. Yeah, I mean, Assemble's a, a, an architecture practice, really. You know, we graduated in 2009 at a point where, as a sort of young, uh, aspiring architects, you know, early 20s, you know, the idealism and sense of, of vision um, and ambition, maybe, that you're kind of imbued with in your architectural education uh, felt very different to the reality of practice. I think graduating at that time, big financial crunch, there weren't many projects which seemed to fulfill 
or or to really have the ambition that maybe our student projects had had. And at the same time, I think just the everyday practice of architecture felt very removed from the process of, of building and construction and city making. So alongside our kind of work in practice, uh, as a kind of group of people that have studied together, came together to try to find somewhere in the city where we could be much more involved in the planning, construction and management of a project. And a big part of that over the first few years when we were formalising sort of slowly was about finding a studio space. And in order to make work, we needed other people around us that had skills and expertise and, and, mm. uh, and practical knowledge about how to make furniture, buildings, components. And so having a studio space, making that studio space somewhere that a kind of broader ecology of people involved in production was really critical. I mean, you mentioned, it's an interesting phrase, city-making. Uh, before and and in a little way, that's what you're up to in Canberra. I mean, that idea, though, of city making, what, what's that responding to? Do you think? You know, we're as a practice partly informed by the fact that you know our work has has often not been at the urban scale. You know, I think generally we have an attitude that cities build up complexity and and kind of richness and variety over time. And you know, instead of seeing things as sort of top down master plans. We're interested in the way you can build up that variety and diversity from the kind of aggregation of lots of smaller scale or mid-scale kind of initiatives. So seeing, I guess, the process of city making as more like a mosaic as opposed to a kind of master plan, something which is Mm. constantly reacting to itself and is able to be, yeah, more resilient and adaptive and incremental um, as opposed to having such a kind of complete and comprehensive vision for something at the beginning you know i think a big element of of all design processes and construction processes is the management of risk and a lot of that sort of totalizing vision is about being able to say this is a thing and other people can buy into that thing and i think we're interested generally in having sort of maybe slightly looser strategies and a kind of common vision but sort of building that up quite slowly and allowing that vision to sort of change and adapt it is yeah. interesting to introduce that thinking into a, a project in Canberra, which is almost definitively an example of that broader planning idea. Yeah, <laughs> and to see it adapting in this in this in this small space here is mm-hmm. here is a grand experiment in perhaps how this place can be reimagined. I mean, take us into Dairy Road, the the juxtapositions in there. How 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 does this 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 place work? How does it work? In, in the intricacies between its various uses? Well, so I think at Dairy Road, at the moment, there's a real mix of, of different um, kinds of business and a really strong community, I think, that exists amongst those various tenants. And, you know, at the largest scale end, you've got um, a business like Capital Brewing um, who have a couple of thousand square metres of space and are looking to expand. And at the smaller end, you have, um, you know, an, a kind of grocers and cafe coffee roasters there's also recreational uses like climbing walls and and then across the road you know you've got fishwick which are you know an industrial sort of area like any other really where there's an enormous kind of mix of businesses involved in all sorts of industrial production and i think at dairy road really the approach is to try to just sort of intensify that mix sort of build on the existing tenant base so you know provide space for people like capital brewing to expand you know, I think mm. 50 years ago, something like brewing was considered 
the kind of operation that would happen. And there was no cultural value to having something like that more accessible or visible. And I think both the kind of, you know, people want to be around those kinds of things now. Um, and so do the people that are producing beer or roasting coffee and those kinds of things. And, you know, the same tensions, I'm sure, will exist there that exist in any other place where those kinds of things have have been, you know, generally managed by the messier, noisier, bigger and more industrious businesses moving out. And that's that's, again, that's not a design problem per se. Design has a role, but it's also about expectations, clarity of communication, um, you know, and making sure that there's a good sort of tenant mix that, you know, sort of can create something quite cohesive uh, out of people that probably want quite different things from the places that they live. And I imagine it important too, though, to, to strive residentially for for a social mix in that, that accommodation as well. Yeah, I mean, we're slightly less involved in the residential development, but I think um, it has been really striking sort of seeing the presentations about how the residential part of the site is developing. I think there was a, a really clear ambition from the beginning, which makes a lot of sense, really, when you think about it. Um, but instead of thinking, as is often the case, about residential provision of one bed, two bed, three bed, four bed types of dwellings, to think more about a greater diversity of ways in which people actually live, to design for sort of small-scale flats that are very economical and affordable for students to share, right up to kind of larger-scale family dwellings that enable kind of multi-generational co-living, which within a kind of framework allows also the fabric to change and adapt, which mm. often isn't the case really within most residential developments that are built. So I guess what the residential and, and the sort of more industrious part of the site have in common is trying to see, you know, the architecture as a as a sort of infrastructure within which there can be quite a lot of adaptation uh, and change over time. You know, it's the case that, you know, people's requirements from the spaces that they live in change over a lifetime. Um, and actually often the simplest kinds of architecture in the UK, that's something like the terraced house, you know, have proved incredibly adaptable yes. um, and, and able to change, you know. So it's actually like getting the simple fundamentals right. Group house or family sort of, house, you choose. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, you know, some of those, you know, in London, it's where you you do get a lot of diversity is often in places where, you know, on the same street that you have a sort of four-storey townhouse, that same building might have been converted into, you know, two family dwellings or four mm. smaller flats or, you know. Um, and I think that's similar with the industrial spaces. Like we're trying to make kind of big, generously proportioned, simple and robustly built kind of envelopes within which like the tenancies are quite loosely defined and can be adapted and changed over time as business, you know, businesses kind of grow or, or move out or require different kinds of space. So I think, yeah, that's something which is kind of common to both the residential and industrial neighbourhoods, I think. This idea of uh, sort of getting the fundamentals right and um, enabling a sort of, you know, a looser fit that can support a wider variety of, um, yeah, kind of tenancies and residences. And within that 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 broader sweep, that uh, that idea of, of, of city making, of this this response to big planning, I mean, it, it feels like we're attempting to create 
villages around our cities, areas of uh, that are entire of themselves, that, that satisfy a, a huge range of human need for the people within those spaces and, and make cities up out of those. That, that feels like a possibility for our future. Yeah, I think scale is really critical to enabling just, I think, both a level of familiarity, but also a degree of dependency. And, and yeah, I think that that is something that is increasingly important, I think, in the workspaces also that we manage in somewhere like the UK, you know, making sure that we're not making buildings where there are unfamiliar faces as you move around. Um, <laughs> the importance of kind of communal facilities, but it makes a big difference, yeah, you know, to, to how people feel about the places that they live and that they work, you know, especially as lots of other aspects of society, you know, really simple things like we all used to tune into the same TV program at 8pm on a Sunday night, you know, we don't do that anymore. Like, actually, the reliance on the, the sort of cultural areas of crossover have probably become smaller and smaller, you know, in spite of having, you know, kind of access to social media and all these things. They're not bringing people together in a more concrete way. So mm -hmm. I think actually, increasingly, you know, the importance of, like, the workplace and the home or the neighbourhood as a place where there is a sort of strong sense of common culture or a, a sort of strong social and civic life, you know, places which feel like sociable and comfortable and diverse, you know, um, in terms of activity and, and kind of people. I think those things are increasingly important because I think in other areas of the culture, those things are, are being challenged, you know. James, look, big and important ideas uh, and wonderful to see them being uh, enacted in our, our national capital. So our thanks and congratulations <laughs> on that. Well, you know, the proof will always be in the pudding, isn't it? It's easy to talk about it when it's a paper project. <laughs> James, yes, thank you. James Benning. And if you want to hear more of uh, James's thoughts on these and other matters, he's presenting public lectures in Canberra and Melbourne uh, over the next week. And we'll pop all of that on the, uh, the details for those on the Blueprint page, the Radio National website. James, he's co-founder of Assemble, architecture, design and art collective based out of the UK. The 2022 Boyers. Of all of the claims I will make in these lectures, this is the boldest and one of which I am most convicted. Racism will diminish in this country when we succeed with recognition. It will not have the same purchase on us. A yes vote to recognise an Indigenous voice to Parliament. What will it mean for all Australians? The Boyers with Noel Pearson Sunday mornings at 9.30 on RN or on the ABC Listen app. Bangay is an internationally acclaimed leading Australian garden designer and these are his garden rudimentals, a blueprint series on the basics of garden craft. Here with Paul Bangay at Stonefields, Paul, it's the height of the Bucks's harvest. <laughs> it's that time of the year that we, we, we look forward to and dread at the same time. <laughs> Simply through sheer numbers do we have dread in our eyes. Well, yes, there's been a lot of trimming going on. Things are looking pretty ship-shape. Well, 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 it's quite a complicated activity because what we've got to do is trim the box before it actually burns in the hot sun. Okay. And so there's a great amount of timing that goes on to make that happen. And so what they've done 
as they've pruned the top of it because that's the bit that burns. So if, if the sun is the enemy, why does, yeah. why does not trimming that back, why does that not expose? Because what it does is you trim up all the old foliage that protects it and the new young foliage is prone to sunburn. And so it's only that fresh growth, that lime acid okay. green that you're seeing now. So getting it back to something older is... Is better. Mm. Do you have any idea how many box plants you have here? No. Good. They're in the thousands. <laughs> Let's, we'll leave it at the tens of thousands. And all sorts of wonderful <laughs> shapes. I mean, there are, there are rectangular square hedges. There are, there are square boxes. There are clouded, beautiful spheres and orbs. And, and this is the, you know, this is one of the wonderful things about how I love to garden is that I love shapes. Mm. You know, we're all loving flowers and we like the wild look, we like the romantic look and I'm embracing flowers. But, like, I do love experimenting with shapes and geometry in the garden. And, you know, I created this part here 18 years ago. So you can see the shapes are quite close together and it was quite a static garden. So I really wanted to make it a bit more dynamic. So I was looking for something that would grow in between in that negative space that would give us some excitement. And about the only thing I could think of were tulips. And so every year we plant 4,000 tulips in here. I was going to ask for the number. <laughs> that, that number I know. <laughs> 4,000 go in every year. 4,000 clear water tulips, that's the variety. So we had to pick exactly the right variety where its head, the flower sits above the shape of the box, but the foliage is below. Okay. Nice. A lot of science, a lot of science in this, well, awful lot of science, and, and, and that, therefore you need to keep that, that box to a certain height right. as well. It gets trimmed back to exactly the same height every year. And in, in Italy, you see those wonderful old Renaissance parterres, same box, been trimmed year after year for hundreds of years. What's the variety of box here? This is Buxus sempervirens. Right, which is the one that we all know and pretty well, familiar it, with. Well, it is, but we're now using Buxus japonica. Because Buxus japonica is much hardier than sempervirens, and the mm. sempervirens is under attack. It gets a mite, and it's getting a little bit of box blight now, and we find the japonica is much tougher. Obviously, right now there is a great deal of activity. Now there is a, a tremendous amount of maintenance to be done. Yeah. yeah. But that's kind of it then. That's isn't it. it. And everyone looks at these formal, very formal gardens and go, well, what the work? I mean, why would you do something? Always out there with your scissors. Yeah, the stitch, work stitch. is incredible. But really, it is a trim once a year, and then it's done. That's it. The formality, I'm trying to think of the sensation that it creates. I mean, it's obviously quite classical and that's set off here with these pencil cypresses as you've got. Pencil to... pines, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, we've spoken about this before, I think verticality, how important verticality is in the garden. And that's, a, that's one thing that you learn as a designer. When you're drawing a plan, you're drawing it in two dimensions. And it's quite often uh, you forget about the, the verticality. But you can see how important it is to punctuate these great big sheets of box yes. with these pencil pines. Which, but a classic combination, isn't it? Pencil pines and box. Well, yeah, and, and I love the way, too, that the, the pines actually come up in the middle of yeah. little box hedges and it's closed entirely around the And look the how well, I mean, if you grow something together from scratch, look how well they coexist. Yes. Like that box is perfect right up to the trunk of the trees. This sort of formality, um, do, do people request this? Not, not very much these days, no. I mean, formality has really fallen out of fashion. And I wonder why. I mean, why, why, why has formality fallen out of fashion? Is it the way we live? I mean, we're, we're, we're more uptight than we ever were, I think. See, I think the funny thing, though, with, with a garden, I mean, with a considered garden, a garden that has planning behind it, to create a sense of relaxed ease is just as difficult as creating a sense of formality. Oh, no, it's, it's harder. 
Much harder to create a casual garden and an informal garden than to create a formal garden. Much easier to, to grow a formal garden, look after a formal garden and plan a formal garden. You know precisely what you've got to do. Exactly, yes. Yep. With a less formal garden, like you're really at the whim of nature. They, they always used to say that in times of insecurity and great uncertainty, formality came back into fashion. Classicism came back mm. into fashion. Classicism is a, is a great sort of strength, isn't it, that you can rely on. That sense of, you were talking about before too of, of space, of the, the positive space of the plant, the negative space yeah. of the space that surrounds it. Yeah. I mean, that's something you create not necessarily in, in just a formal setting. No, that's right. I mean, and that, that, this is the perfect example of it here, you know, the negative space being the space between the box plants. But in modern design now and, and in these new casual wilder gardens, a lot of the negative space has been taken away. And so in, in, in a more formal traditional garden, you'd have lovely big expanses of lawn, big terraces, and that's what I call the negative space. Now we're reducing the lawns just to small paths winding through big, deep garden beds. So the, the, the look is a much fuller look, relying on negative space a lot less than it did previously. Now, the tabletop boxes that I'm looking at, you know, I'm interested in the technicality of this, yeah. the sort of guides and systems that are used to get that finish, which is very precise. Well, Tim, our gardener here, is um, fanatical about it, and so he gets a laser out. Now, it's not a laser beam. <laughs> Sadly, it's not a laser beam that can trim it. It's a laser that shoots across the top of it and tells you if any little blade is sort of out or any little leaf is sticking out. So it gives you this exact precise line all the way along. Now, the old-fashioned way used to be with strings. Yes. People used to put a string up on one end, string up the other end, put a level on it to get it completely perfect. And what about the curves and the spheres? The, and curves, the, the curves, we've got templates. On the round box, we've got a little plywood circle that sits on top and you clip around to that. And on the curves on the vertical hedges to the sides, there's another little template and you clip around that with the curve on it. And what do you clip with? So we use petrol shears here for the most of the box. There's a high sort of repetitive strain risk if the, you were doing that. And there is, right. and we're now going over to electric, you'll be glad to know. Uh -huh. So the, the whole new trend is for battery operated yes. mechanical tools, which is wonderful, quieter, more heavy, sadly, which is harder on their backs. But for all the boxes, all the spheres, they use hand shears. I'm imagining, you know, the, the, the late winter months here at Stonefields as the, the garden staff are sharpening their shears <laughs> in preparation. Getting, for preparation them. for yes. spring. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, this, this is all going to be done in the spring before the weather gets too hot. Well, it must be quite a, a hectic schedule. It's a very hectic schedule. I mean, you know, winter is that time where you catch up on all the activities and get the shed in order and, and make sure all the, all the plumbing's working in the garden and all the infrastructure's working. And then spring comes with great gusto and everything explodes into, into growth, as you can see here, and it's just constant, constant trimming. What has amazed you this spring? I mean, it's been a very wet time and now getting quite warm. So for the, I think for the first time in my 58 years of life, I've said these words too much rain. <laughs> I would never, ever have said that before. Everything's just soaked. I mean, our lilacs sadly haven't come out because they're just too wet. The roses are all sort of sort of just wilting on the stems because they've got too much mildew on them. It's, it is too wet this year. So these are, these are water iris and they sit in our ponds. They sit in each corner of the pond. Um, they die down in winter and come back up, but now, of course, they're flowering in the spring, aren't they? Spectacular in flower. The like blue, blue. Is, is superb. I know, it is. And it's funny, when they die down, you get that absence of green in the, in the terrace and the ponds. It looks so bare. 
You just, just having that little bit of greenery coming up makes all the difference. Because, of course, you can get the spot of snow here in winter, can't we you? We do, yeah. We used, to, we used to get regular snow. We haven't had it for some years now, sadly. As we slowly warm up, the snow's disappearing. And, uh, and Oh, uh, lots of fruit coming on. The consequence, I think, again, of a, of a wet year is that we usually have one good year of apples, one bad year of apples. They go in two-season cycles. We've had three good years of apples. So it's, This it's will a be one, won't it? This will be the third good year. Do you have to net them, apples? No, so we've got 12 apple trees. The birds get, I think, 20%, and the other 80% of 12 trees is plenty for us. Fair shares. Yeah, fair shares, exactly. What are they, by the way? <laughs> Crimson Crisp, the sweetest, crispest red apple you could get. It's an interesting moment in spring too, isn't it? Sort of late spring, the, the first big flush of colour and so on is done. Yeah, Things are settling a little into summer. Well, there's always this period where you get well, the wonderful exuberance of spring and then there's a lull between you get the, the perennials of summer. So mm. there's always this period, this quiet period in between. But at, at the moment, you can see we're, we're just in the height of spring here. Yes, it's, it's <laughs> and a, when, when it's, I created busy, this rose garden, space. I'd just been to Iran and seen uh-huh. the rose gardens of Shiraz. The rose gardens there are just unbelievable. So they're not like our typical... Uh, English-inspired rose gardens where it's all pastels and safe colours. They do hot, warm red colours. And so all our roses here are crimson and dark, dark plum in colour. There's a stack of planting around them. Yes. So we wanted the feeling of, if you, if you sort of squint a little bit, does it look like a Persian rug? Okay, I'll give you that. You give me that? Yeah, yeah. that's the feeling we wanted. So <laughs> I'll sit down, have a cup of tea and possibly buy one. A <laughs> couple of glasses of wine, it looks more like a Persian rug. But that feeling of those sort of really deep colours weaving in and out of each mm. other yes. with a little bit of cream and white to sort of, sort of give it a bit of pop is the feeling we wanted for the rose garden. Because people, I mean, the conventional wisdom about rose garden too is that it is just roses and you, yeah. you keep things very spare. No, well, there you go back to that negative space again. You mm. don't want too much negative space. Well, here's the complete opposite. We've gone completely full of, of, of plant material with no negative space. Bees must go crazy in here. The bees love it, absolutely love it, yeah. And the roses are happy in this in this. Roses setting? are happy in here. I mean, they, they like a lot of ventilation, mm. so they prefer to be out in the middle of a, of a field getting more ventilation, but they seem quite happy in here. But, does, yeah, well, it's true that despite so much going on around the actual bush itself of the rose, it's, yeah. it's quite clear. Yeah. No, you've got to leave a little bit of bare, bare soil around there. And then do you like our paving? Yeah, it is good. So these are, these are um, odd-sized pieces of granite from Italy and odd-sized depths and widths and everything. So a nightmare to lay, but they give you that sort of um, very handmade look, that sort of yes. very textural sort of look to the paving. Mm-hmm. What are the food miles in this paving? Um, not good. <laughs> but luckily we're not eating them. <laughs> 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 and even even here, we find some some orbs of, of boxes just to give some shape. We can't get away from the shapes of boxes, can we? <laughs> they seem to come follow us around everywhere. But I softened it down by planting thyme at the base of them. Very nice. So that's that's sort of giving the softness underneath. Ruby Ruby the spaniel is, is now fossicking. Isn't that all you can see is a tail going through the weaving through the foliage? Yes, yeah, looking for Are rabbits. They peonies in there too. Just yes, it's a tree. A tree peony. If anyone wants to grow peonies, tree peonies are the safest ones. They're your mm. best bet. The most reliable out of all of them. A good return. The others are pretty finicky. They are too hard to grow. You need a very cold winter with frost on top of them. Well, it is splendid to, to see this, this vision of spring. The, the, the trimming process on all the hedges here, it, 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 
vague sort of estimate of time? A lot. Ah. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. a lot. I mean, for, you know, it occupies their time, the gardener's time, really from October, November, December, and then it stops growing in January. When the heat comes, the heat of summer comes, it stops, yeah. they stop growing. Everything, so Everything quietens down. Yeah. I mean, they retreat because they just have to from the extreme mm. heat and dry. You just missed the bunny going past your feet. The cocker spaniel missed her. Oh. <laughs> She's still overlooking for alert. <laughs> Not for Come on, alert, Ruby, no. you can do better than that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everything being supervised by the uh, the eminent eminent shape of Harold the Peacock. Harold the Peacock, <laughs> keeping an eye on things from. See, that's eye. a testament to the strength of our hedges. I mean, he sits up there all day on top of that hedge, just Harold's watching just out. Yeah, it's, I mean, they'll take the weight of a human. Those those hedges up there. He loves it. Just keeping an eye on everything. Well, Paul, thank you for this this spring vision. Pleasure, always a pleasure. time uh, for an icon here on Blueprint for Living, and that means but one thing. Beep, beep. Colin Bissett. The radiator grille is the face of a car. It's been an important design feature for over a hundred years, a defining element that identifies the brand of vehicle while giving a hint to the car's character. Some grills look like toothy grins. Others are more evocative, like the backward rake of a 1970s BMW that gives a shark-like hint of stealth and speed. The most famous grill of all, Rolls-Royce's, has the classicism of the Parthenon in polished metal, telling us that while you might not be able to afford a stately home in the Palladian style, then you can at least drive a car that looks like one. Without a grill, cars would look very different, and with the rising popularity of electric cars, maybe they're destined to disappear. The first petrol-driven vehicle was a sort of motorised three-wheeled carriage designed by Carl Benz in 1885. Its combustion engine at the back was completely open to the elements. Things had changed by 1901 when German engineers Wilhelm Maybach and Paul Daimler launched a vehicle that set the style for cars that would follow. It was called the Mercedes 35 PS and had the engine placed before the driver and encased by a bonnet. At the front was a large radiator, a honeycomb design perfected by Maybach, made up of 8,000 tiny pipes through which the heated water from the engine circulated, cooled by oncoming air. This became the default for most water-cooled engines. The more powerful the engine, the bigger the radiator. Grills were designed to shield it from stones and dust, and while most were simple mesh, their frames could be shaped to provide something altogether more distinctive. They became a big part of brand identity, although the cheaper the car, the simpler the grill. The first Model T, launched by Ford in 1908, had a basic brass frame for its radiator, but this was eventually changed to a decorative grille with the Ford name at its centre in a dashing script. 
The BMW company, makers of aircraft engines, bought a flailing car company in 1928 that made a version of the Austin 7, and they poached a coach builder's design for the iconic BMW radiator, commonly known as the split kidney, which has remained in some form as an essential part of BMW design language. By the middle of the 20th century, interest in aerodynamics, along with the idea of speed it evoked, led to curvier cars with integrated headlamps and a change from the traditional upright grille to a wider, lower air intake, often quite generic. Some luxury manufacturers, like Bentley, persisted with the upright grille, offering a design cue that harked back to their origins, and some still do. With rear-mounted air-cooled engines, like the first Volkswagens of the late 1930s, a radiator grille at the front was redundant. But some front-engine cars, like the Citroen DS of 1955, tucked air ducts below the front bumper to eliminate the need for a grille and to highlight its sleek aerodynamic form. The grille has remained, although sometimes abused, with grand ones grafted onto cheaper cars to posh them up, as British Leyland did in the 1970s. Even when the electric car arrived, a blank panel was often employed to honour the design convention and placate a public wary of the novelty, although Tesla dropped the fakery in 2016. The combustion engine for cars will disappear, but electric cars still need airflow to cool batteries and brakes. The radiator grille might survive then as a relic of the past or just as brand logo. Or maybe it's because we simply like our machines to have faces. Colin, thank you. Uh, All Colin's icons gathered for you at the ABC Listen app, which is where you can find all we do here at Blueprint Plus. Uh, our wonderful Travel of the Mind podcast return ticket. Uh, this week, we're off to Timbuktu. Or are we? ABC Listen app. Uh, more Blueprint, same time, next time. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.